And so the question that I ask my clients is, do you want the least painful road or do you want the road that leads to the most growth? Because you can't have both. And, and so for the person who goes, I just don't want to suffer by all means, take your NSAIDs, bury your shit nice. All right. So I am here for episode 29, and this is going to be a gunslinging, shoot from the cuff, have some fun with a good guy out in Long Island named Mike Stella. How you doing, Mike? I'm doing great, Chris. How about yourself? Amazing. Amazing. So let's just start right in and, and give us your, like your pronouns, your identifiers. Where are you at? What are you doing? Uh, uh, I'm just I'm the- just a normal red-blooded guy, man. Um, you know, so... I identify exactly how you want to identify me. That's fine by me. So, uh, yeah, my, I mean, my background, I'm an athletic trainer by trade and a strength coach. Um, I mostly work on the athletic training side, but in a non-traditional setting. So I don't, I left kind of that traditional model of athletic training behind. And now I have my own, my own practice and, and I see athletes and clients, you know, privately and, and just building my business here a little bit at a time, trying to break some break some stigmas and bust some myths and, and just help people feel better, move better and move more. That's, that's the goal. Absolutely. And I, I think that's why this is really fun. I, I think you're my East coast version of myself and, you know, some of the, the way you look at things with inflammation inflammation and ice and some of the things that are like, you know, quid pro quo, that dogma is finally starting to go away. And we're going to talk all about ice and inflammation and what other things you could do better than just slapping ice on things. But um, tell us about this route and journey out of the traditional athletic trainer role, which, yeah, you know, again, I've been in sports medicine at the NCAA level since 2013, sorry, 2008. So like 13 years worth. And I know it's a, it's a hard trench to live in at that division one level for a long time, right? Salaries aren't amazing. Time and hours are ridiculous. And I, I'm sure there's a lot of burnout in the field. Tell us what that looked like for you and how did it draw you into where you're at now? I mean, you know, like, you know, I get this, the origin story a lot. Um, but I, I fell in, in love with athletic training because I was an injured athlete in high school. You know, I was a highly recruited lacrosse player, ended up having a complex knee blowout, ACL, PCL, MCL, meniscus, tibial plateau, like the whole shebang. Um, and, and that was kind of really my, my soiree or my introduction into sports medicine. And, and I just kind of fell in love with it. Um, and so, you know, I did my undergrad in athletic training and I worked in that traditional model and you're right. It is a ton of hours. It was a lot of burnout. I worked for all the way from sec, like division one, like the highest ND ones you can work oh. all the way down to mid-major division ones. And, you know, for me as an injured athlete who never got back to where I wanted to be, it, it kind of was, I wanted to be the guy. I wanted to be the guy that I needed in my corner when I was going through my recovery, you know? And so I really wanted to work with high level athletes. And that was like an early career career goal of mine. And, you know, I ended up jumping in at the sec level right away. And that's kind of when I got my, you know, you kind of get your, your school of hard knocks a little bit. You go, okay, this is a lot different than it seems like it's like, Oh, you want to be a D one athletic trainer. And it's like, you know, a hundred hours a week later, (laughs) <laughs> that gets old real quick, you know? And, and so, but it was awesome for me because I got to, I, I call it sports medicine in a bubble. You know, I got to work with the highest level of athletes with really no financial restriction whatsoever. It was like, if you could give your athlete a 1% benefit, do it. 
because it's worth it. And so it's just a different mindset than I experienced years later in the private sector when I worked at a physical therapy clinic, like kind of like a classic physical therapy outpatient model. Mm -hmm. And it was the exact opposite of that. It was so cost conscious. It was so time conscious. And the end result of that experience was people didn't get better. You know, you just couldn't spend enough time to really educate people on how to take care of themselves and how to self-treat and how to move better. And, and so I got burnt out in that for entirely different reasons. And so, so yeah, I mean, um, the genesis of my business now, the movement underground is really like kind of giving my clients that D one experience, but without me having to sacrifice everything about my personal life in order to do so. Um, so that's kind of where we're at now. Yeah. And what I've found, you know, working at Cal Berkeley, you know, great athletes, amazing sports medicine team with multidisciplinary, you know, communication. And, and it's beautiful to see the nuances of every discipline trying to help that client as much as possible. But there's a lot of bureaucracy and there's a lot of inadequacies and there's a lot of, I think, antiquated thought on the way sports medicine should be practiced. So let's talk about that as a segue, like what I see and I've seen it for many years at the highest level of sports, working with pro teams as well as we're kind of just still in that traditional, put some stim on it, put some ice on it. Let's do some recovery that way. And I don't think I've seen much change in 13 years in the overall management of an acute injury. And tell us what that looked like for you at the SEC level. And how did that shape, or maybe that was part of the catalyst for you shifting out of that model into something more progressive? Yeah. Listen, you're, you're hundred percent right. It's still that way across all of NCAA and professional sports. And uh, I forget where I heard this. I really would love to give the right credit, but I, I can't remember. It's new ideas take about 30 years to uh, permeate into academia, um, into that setting. And, and the reason why isn't because it takes that long to learn stuff. It's because that's the average tenured professor's <laughs> career. You know, and so the boot out. (laughs) Right. And and so and so you're talking, you're looking at a system where, you know, you're you you kind of idolize those. I don't want to say old timers, but people have been there for I always joke. It's like, what's the fastest way to become an NATA Hall of Famer? It's like go to a school, stay there for 35 years and don't do anything that rocks the boat. And you you (laughs) get your green jacket. And and no offense to the Hall of Famers. Again, Uh nothing but respect and love. It's just that's what we reward. And so you know, my whole thing about like going against the traditional grain wasn't to piss people off. It wasn't to, you know, make a wave so that people would notice me. It was, I wanted to give my athletes the absolute best care possible and be the best sports medicine practitioner I could be. And what that led to was me just being very curious and asking why. And I guess in a, in a way questioning what was always done, you know, like I, even when I was a student, I had a hard time with the whole icing thing. It's like, well, if we're trying to get blood flow and this and that, like, why I don't understand how this fits in. Like, I just don't get it. And my program director's response to me at that time was because this is what we do. This is why. And and I'm like, that's not good enough, man. I I can't, I can't wrap my head around the mechanistic action behind this. And your answer to me is don't worry about it. Do it because that's the way it's always been done. It's like, that's the, it just, for whatever reason, I just couldn't accept that. And so, you know, so what do you do? You, you, you research and you, you know, start to dig through stuff. And that's kind of where the genesis of the course came from was I felt like early in my career, you know, I got better results from not using ice, especially with acute injuries and getting my athletes moving quicker, you know, not being stupid, but 
getting them moving through the process quicker. And I always felt like I did a really, really good job managing the short term. And I, and I anecdotally saw that those athletes were less injured or less re-injured long-term. And so my COVID project was, let me put this together in a course, because I don't think it's good enough to just say ice doesn't work. Don't do it. Well, what are you going to replace it with? It's not good. It's not enough to just say this, isn't good. It's what, well, what, what do we have that's better? And so, well, and blanket statements don't work anyways. I mean, we see blanket right. statements in our industry all, all the time, the board, right? So, so much. And it's unfortunate because people will take that, that tagline or that research article and just run with it and apply it to all situations and all demographics. Right. Right. Oh, totally. Yeah. And, and again, it's just, everybody wants that simple solution to a complex problem. Or I think, I think now it happens more just because people want to be uh, controversial, you know? So you take a con, take a unpopular opinion now, throw a blanket statement at it. And all of a sudden people are looking at you. And, and again, and again, on social media, that works for attention, but it lacks depth, right? It lacks substance. And, and honestly, it's a nuanced, con- everything across clinical care is nuanced, right? It's, there's a, I always say to all my clients, people like, oh, you hate ice, right? I'm like, there's a time and a place for everything. There's absolutely a time and a place for everything, including ice, Mm -hmm. but let's be specific about what that time and place is and use the right tool for the right job. That that's, that's the whole point. Absolutely. So yeah, I think you you hit it on the head where you're at with a place that has more resources, more ideas swirling around because everybody wants their product to be promoted with this great, you know, division one team or this pro team. You have the chance to try out a bunch of things. And I think what's nice is you start to see what really works regardless of what the research says, right? Because you're there for, like you said, the, the one to 2% gain that's going to affect their performance, affect their practice, affect their ability to be the best that they could be with things. And you have this time and, and this energy to practice in that niche. And you probably spent, you know, how many hours setting up somebody for an instrument assisted soft tissue mobilization, like you know, a billion hours, because at that time, you're just your, your tool is getting crafted and chiseled, because you have so much contact with that, you know, Uh, that is, you nailed it, man. And people always ask me, like, how do I learn? How do I? How can I be good like you and do what you do? And it's like, I've had a lot of time in the trenches. And I think that's when people people like to bash athletic training for lots of different reasons, poor pay, a lot of hours. But Tell me a sports medicine practitioner that gets that time in the trenches. Like you said, in a bubble, that's what I mean by in a bubble. It's almost like you, you get this ability to practice with very little outside influence, which is good and bad, but you get to practice and try on healthy neurologically intact people. And those athletes are very in tune with their body. They're going to let you know instantly if they feel something's effective or not. And it's hard to ignore an Olympic gold medalist when he's telling you, I feel better with this. Right. So how can you ignore that? Yes. Is that evidence anecdotal? Definitely. But is it meaningful? It sure as hell shaped my career and the way that I look at these kinds of problems. So yeah, man, I, I think you, you nailed it. It's just when you have yeah. a lot of resource, you put a lot of time and just like anything else, right. 10,000 hours of mastery to master something in, in, in a subject matter. I, I just think, you know, athletic training, the, the benefit is you get a lot of that early on. And if you embrace it, it can really shape your career and, and, uh, and, and you as a clinician. Absolutely. That's great sound advice for young clinicians up and coming. I, I think it's really interesting just to see the way you modify your practice behavior. Cause you do, most people read some literature, re- stay up on some research, and then you modify your behaviors based on what this feedback is from the athlete and athletes, especially at the D- division one NCAA level, they don't waste time because you're a student and an athlete at the same time. 
they have no time for anything that's not worth their their while, basically. And at the higher levels as well, like there's just so much training, so much other stuff going on. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah, can't agree with you more. That's that's exactly that's exactly why I think working with athletes can be really fun, but yeah. also highly stressful. Because, you know, it's just like, well, the evidence says this, it's like, well, it doesn't matter if it's not making that athlete feel better. So, you know what I mean? There's a get, there's the art and the science to it. And you have to be able to blend the two and you got to get them to buy in. Totally. Totally. So let's shift into that. You know, you're working with these athletes, you're getting some feedback. You're going to go back and see what does the literature say about this? Cause we, we should all be evidence informed practitioners. And if I look at a quick PubMed search, I see nothing on ice for about 15 or 20 years, right? We didn't get good ice data until the last five or 10 years, maybe. And there was like this epic hole of people not analyzing because they just took it for granted. So what kind of catalyzed you into like going down the research hole of, you know, what is ice really practical for and what it's helpful for? And what are some of the, you know, really groundbreaking studies that you saw in the last five or 10 years? You know, it that's, it's, it's really interesting. And I think the first thing I looked at was like the trend, the, the, the trends in the literature, what were, what were the big hits? And, and so you can find ice literature as far as like clinical practice going back. You start to see it more in the seventies and eighties, yeah, right? Sure. Late seventies, early eighties. Yep. And what happened was, I think there was some early correlative data that got a causative label early on and that set the trend in the literature. So what do we see? We see, you know, people are subjectively reporting less pain after ice treatment and we're seeing reduction in girth, right? Size uh, or swelling size by girth measurements. So those were two things that basically said, see, ice reduces inflammation. It's reducing swelling. Therefore it must be good. And then the trend in the eighties was really looking at how to get the best cooling effect or how deep does the cooling go? With different type, yeah. very, very mechanistic, very, very uh, parameter based research. Yeah, totally. But the problem was the fundamental, the fundamental assumption was that it was good. There was that's not a whole boring. lot or really any research. You're hundred percent right on the physiological, histological, what's happening at a cellular level, what's happening at a hormonal level, what's happening at all of, you know, this, the physiology of what's going on under the hood, as far as the healing process was concerned, we just kind of assumed it was good. We took it as that. Um, so you're dead right. So I do reference one study by William McMaster in, in 1980, and it was and it, there was nothing remarkable about this study except for the trend was set, which is this this researcher, this physician. I uh, he acknowledges the fact that there's no real mechanistic data to suggest that it's efficacious or positive, yet he recommends it universally in acute, subacute, and chronic injuries and illnesses anyway. <laughs> and that is remarkable to me. It's like, well, we don't know why it works or how it works or if it's good or not, but we see stuff get smaller. So it's good. Therefore, I recommend using it. It's like, what? Yeah. I mean, this is um, a great moment for if you're out there and you don't question everything, you're not going to see that some of the foundations that you were built upon are just, they're built on sand. They're not built on strong right. foundations. Just some small yeah. assumption errors and that, then, that yeah, we built have, everything on top of. Okay. <laughs> and an expert at some point said, this is the way to go. And everybody just ran with it. Or right. you see a study like this from 1980, where there's so often spin in a discussion or conclusions aspect of a research paper that they find this data and then they spin their own bias into it at the end to say, well, we think we should use ice in both acute, subacute and chronic. 
and nobody ever actually studied the data of those actual parameters, right? Right. So, right. so you're in this kind of epic bubble of like, whoa, this stuff is not holding up. And then you get to say 2010, 2015, things start unraveling a little bit. What does that look like in terms of the literature? Well, I think we start seeing, you know, in the, in the 2000, like, like you're saying, 2010s and on, we start to see a lot more like animal studies. Uh, and, and again, this is kind of where some people even poo-poo the animal studies because, oh, but it's just a rat. Oh, it's just a pig. It's like, well, listen, mammalian physiology is mammalian physiology. And we can learn a lot from these animal studies if we pay attention. And, you know, so we start to see a lot of research on you know, ice and crush injuries in rats. So basically inducing muscle trauma, inducing deep tissue trauma, and then using no ice versus ice and seeing what it shakes out. But the nice thing about these animal studies is they're actually looking at the physiology and the chemical healing nature. And what we start to see is, yes, maybe we have reduced pain, obviously in those subjective trials, but we also see, uh, uh, inhibition of the migration of fibroblasts into the healing tissue. We see an inhibition of uh, white blood cells and, and leukocytes and all these things that need to kind of kickstart the actual healing process. And so basically we start to see that we're slowing down recovery. Quick breakdown on the cells mentioned. Fibroblasts contribute to the formation of connective tissue, which is key in wound healing. There's many different types of white blood cells like leukocytes, macrophages, monocytes, and granulocytes. Without getting too technical, we basically need all of these cells to be active after an injury to promote healing and to remove foreign substances. We're actually inhibiting the healing process and in doing so with excessive icing, we're actually leading to more scar tissue formation. And so, you know, how many people complain about, oh, I had this surgery and then, oh, but I have, now I have excessive scar tissue. Now I need surgery to get rid of my scar tissue. And it's like, well, let me guess, you spent a lot of time burying that thing in ice, didn't you? Mm-hmm. And, and that tends to be the trend. Right. And so, and it's even funny still how we'll get some people that say, Oh, but it's just an animal study. It's like, well, listen, you know, it, it's kind of really hard for manual therapy research, like what you're dealing with and, or stuff like this, where we have to induce an injury to get people to sign up for that and stick with it the whole, however many months that study is going to go for. Right. So that's kind of where the whole, I wouldn't say anti ice movement started happening, but I think that's in the 2010s and on is when we started seeing more people say, ah, but wait, is this as good as we think it is? Because prior to that ice and EDSEDs really were like the acute, I call it the acute care fleet. They were the standard operating gold standard of approach for any care with regard to a sprain, a strain, or any type of acute injury, right? So if you went to a hospital ER, an acute care clinic, a physio, a physical therapist, Cairo, anywhere you went with an acute injury, ice, immobilization, and possibly an NSAID or a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug were the three things that you got, and maybe immobilization. And so my whole thing was, well, if... if ice isn't what it's cracked up to be, are there better alternatives? And that's the question that I sought to answer. Now there's a lot more research. I think even our research methods are just getting better at the ability to look at a lot of these things like, you know, your blood. Yeah. We have so much more technology to be able to measure these things. Um, But now we're starting to see a lot more, even a reemergence of like curled cold water immersion research, you know, and we're starting to see the subtleties and difference in there. And and so I think we're, we're starting to get into a really exciting time and, you know, end of the ice age was just kind of my like ushering in this, this new wave of 
embracing technology and, and what we have available that can replace these things, but also kind of kicking it old school and getting hands-on and, and showing just how we can move fluid and how we can be effective and actually augmenting the healing process with things that are simple as manual therapy to self-care tools that people can do at home. Totally. Well, and it's like you said, like the standard operating procedure for any ER doc, for any primary care, for any sports medicine professional for 20, 30 years has been NSAIDs and ICE. And that comes at a price, right? If you are going to get a little swelling down for that immediate short-term effect, what are we doing to the physiologic system? That's kind of the, the opposite. It's a double-edged sword. You're really paying yeah. a big price. So talk to us about what those fee for, you know, getting a little swelling down is what, what, what are the prices we're paying for that? I mean, you know, it, it that's a, such a great, and that's the fundamental question that I asked. What is, what is the cost? Cause everything has a cost. And so basically kind of how it manifested in my mind is there's, there's basically two paths you can take as a patient, right? If you have an injury or surgery or whatever the case is, you're dealing with an acute injury or trauma. How do you move forward? There's the the path of the least amount of suffering. And then there's the optimized path and they're not the same thing. Yeah. They're not the same thing. And so the question that I ask my clients is, do you want the least painful uh, road or do you want the road that leads to the most growth? Yeah. Because you can't have both. And, and so for the person who goes, I just don't want to suffer by all means, take your NSAIDs bury your shit in ice. Sorry. Yeah. I didn't mean to curse. I just kind of tap out. Um, by all means, you know, ice is a fantastic pain reducer. I admit it. Fantastic pain reducer, yeah. but at the cost of healing. And, and I think, you know, anytime you say, but it's, but it's this, it's like, but you also have to add at the cost of healing at the end of that statement, because that's the cost, right? You're slowing things down. You're, you're creating vasoconstriction, um, you know, and multiple studies show like the, you know, there was this theory of the hunting effect, right? Where you'd have, or the hunter's effect. I forget exactly the terminology for it, which is like, oh, once you create a lot of vasoconstriction with cold, you know, your body has to rewarm. So it, it opens everything up as soon as you're done. And that's kind of been disproven. It doesn't happen in, in, in the effect of like local tissue. Mike's referring to the hunting response, which is a process of alternating vasoconstriction and vasodilation in extremities exposed to cold. Vasoconstriction occurs first to reduce heat loss, but then also results in strong cooling of the extremities. So approximately 5 to 10 minutes after the start of cold exposure, the blood vessels in the extremities will suddenly vasodilate. This cold-induced vasodilation increases blood flow and subsequently the temperature of the extremity. A new phase of vasoconstriction follows the vasodilation, after which the process repeats itself. Um, and so, you know, to answer your question directly, you know, what is the cost? Well, you know, obviously on the icing side of it is slower fibroblastic um, migration. And with slower fibroblastic migration, you also end up getting incomplete healing and more tissue scarring, right? So, and randomization, right? randomization 100%. That also organized. happens when you immobilize stuff yeah. too. There's no, there's no stress. There's no load for these fibroblasts to orient themselves to, to lay down collagen and fibrin and all these, you know, um, protein strands in the right direction so that you have that disorganization of, of tissue. Um, and that's kind of where I get into external loading, which is definitely in your school and, and what you talk about a lot. Yeah. But, you know, we also just get, you know, poor blood flow. We get incomplete vascularization of that tissue. We get 
you know, again, we just, we just complicate the whole process, right? Because we think inflammation's bad, yeah. right? Because we see, okay, inflammatory response comes with pain. So we, we, you know, putting those two things together and marrying them together was one of the worst things. We went on this witch hunt, yeah. this crusade against inflammation. And that's kind of where the NSAIDs come in, yeah. you know, and NSAIDs for the most part, depending on which drug, you know, obviously there's hundreds of different drugs in the anti-inflammatory classifications, but, you know, traditional NSAIDs, work by their their cox inhibitors right they actually inhibit prostaglandins cox is an enzyme that's responsible for the formation of prostaglandins which are powerful vasodilators and they're the key in the inflammatory response therefore by inhibiting cox which is basically what an NSAID does you reduce the amount of inflammation that takes place so let's just say you strain a muscle, right? You have muscle fibers that are torn. Those damaged cells were releasing cytokines that not only call in your immune system's function, right? They're calling in the white blood cells, the monocytes, the macrophages that are cleaning up and debriding that damaged tissue, but they also then release their own cytokines that call in the fibroblast for repair. Yeah. So essentially what we're doing, whether you're doing that locally with something like ice or you're doing it globally with like a, like an anti-inflammatory drug is that you're delaying that process from happening and your body's response to that is, well, if I can't reproduce this tissue, like for like, or regenerate it, right. Mitosis for bio one-on-one, you're going to get scarring. The the, the secondary approach to healing up that tissue is scar tissue. That's fibrosis. That's what's going to happen. Right. So now instead of giving your body the most apt ability to heal and regenerate like for like, you've essentially created the recipe for excessive scar tissue formation. And let's take it a step further from that. You're stuck in a T-scope brace for your knee and you're not moving it for four to six weeks because you also had a meniscus repair. Now, what is that doing to your fibroblast, not getting the right turnover, not responding to loads because you're not loading it, right? Right. And that's where my, my biggest... I think pet peeve is not adding loads to the things you're doing, whether it's instrument assisted or cups or whatever it is. Like if you don't load it, you're not turning the fibroblasts on to orient those collagen fibers that are getting laid down. You know, I a hundred percent agree with you. And I think the other crime that goes with like the acute care is just rest it for four weeks or people have a surgery. It's like, don't go to rehab yet. You got to rest it. It's like, well, what's exactly happening when your ass is on the couch covered in Cheeto dust? Nothing. You're doing nothing for yourself. You know what I mean? Not to mention you're not loading it. At least at some point getting some hands on, at least there's some external loading that can happen. You know, if you really can't be weight bearing, you know, like there are certain, let's say surgical procedures where weight bearing super contraindicated. You know, if you really can't load it, go get some external load, man, go get some treatment, go get some manual therapy, you know, go get some, some cardio, non-painful cardio around the other areas of your body. Just get your body working on some level. Because load is not just lifting weights. Load is so much of the things that Mike just talked Passive about. Passive range of motion is load. Right? And I think, yes. you know, and just like the Big earlier, range. the better. And I can't stress that enough for people. It's like, hey, Mike, I just had surgery. When should I come see you? Like now, like as like today, totally. like when did you have surgery yesterday? Good. Get in today. Yeah. And I just wish, you know, so I'm working on a new version of end of the ice age called the surgeon's cut. Uh-huh. Um, I'm trying to trim it down and, and give and make it an hour. And, yeah. and, and really target it to surgeons because we need our orthos to get oh, yeah. on board with this because so much of the dogma and so much of the not progressing this comes because the MD says, don't do it. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, 
for all our MDs out there, I love you guys and I love you girls. But at the end of the day, it's you don't realize how much your words matter. And when you tell somebody, when you're just trying to get to your next patient or your next case, don't do it. You're, you're really putting people in a hole where there's so much they can do. You know, let's not focus on what they can't do. Let's focus on what they can do. Um, and, and I think that's going to get people having a whole lot less secondary issues later down the line. Totally. So let's, let's talk a little bit about the resistance to this idea that rice needs to go away. And, and the acronym I always loved, I, I've been teaching this since like 2011 is I like meat more than rice. Yeah. Meat is like muscle activation, exercise, analgesics instead of anti-inflammatories and treatment. Right. right. So meat is always my preferred go-to instead of rice. Right. Plus I like meat better. I think people, I like meat better too. People want an if then statement. If yeah. this happens, then you do this. They right. want the algorithm. They okay. want the exact protocol. And the problem with something like meat is it's too general. Whereas rice was like rest, ice, compression, elevation. I know exactly what to do. I can do this. Yes. Awesome. Oh. Right. And so meat's a little too general and people don't know. It's like, okay, well, how do I load this if I'm not sure? So I actually came up with my own acronym as part of the course and I call it the mindful method. Um, and so it's kind of like a little bit of a double entendre. I worked really hard on that, but <laughs> kind of giving more specificity to the meat acronym. So um, movement, inspire and inform. Um, uh, no NSAIDs is the N, but also stands for nutrition, where right. we can kind of use nutritional uh, recommendations, general, keeping it simple for people about, I basically teach people how to eat clean. And, and, and the goal is maybe they can use this traumatic experience to kind of install some healthy habits for their lifestyle, not even just for the here and now. Right. Um, the D stands for, you're going to love this ready decompression. decompression. (laughs) I talk about edema taping specifically and, and why I really like that as a model. We could talk more about compression because there is a time and a place there, um, but I'm very specific about acute injuries and using decompression. It's just a preference. Um, the F stands for force or load. I just, I, I needed the L for something else. So the U stands for unity, which is creating that therapeutic alliance. And the L is for lymphatics and really focusing our target of, you know, in the acute stage, focusing our target on the lymphatic system and how there's a lot of opportunity and upside there for us as, as clinicians to address the edema problem very, very early and often. So that's, that's my acronym. It's a little deeper. It's got a lot of, you know, double meanings in there, but um, it's just being aware that everything you do, everything you say actually does matter. Um, and especially in that early on, if I think one of the things that I'm, I'm most proud of is, you know, I created all of these infographics and, and resources that come with the course that are unbranded. And, and I'm literally telling clinicians like, take the, yeah. brand them as yours and use it, it done for you resources to educate and, and help reinforce the messaging that you're saying and help people have a plan. I think, you know, if you have understand what your plan is ahead of time, like, let's just say, you know, I'm going to have surgery next week and I can really, Hey, this is how we're going to biohack this. This is how we're going to, you know, attack your recovery from day one on that helps reduce people's anxiety. It helps reduce their fear. And if you could do those, they're going to have a lot less pain. Right. And that's that psychosocial side of it. And I talk a lot about that in the course as well like the social, the psychosocial in, in implications of pain. Yeah. Let's talk about alternatives, right? So you're going to need an alternative for a lot of times that traditionally clinicians would use ice to get down swelling, even though we don't know ice really doesn't shrink swelling that much, 
But let's talk about lymphatics because I think that's the gateway to provide alternatives, right? And I did a great podcast with Perry Nicholson a few back and we talked all about, I mean, he's, he's the guru of lymph. He's the lymphatics guy. Yeah. And, and a lot of it's, in, a lot of what I did was inspired by him, yeah. but there's other like manual therapy, like lymphatic drainage certifications out there. And I'm not going to name names, but they're always named after the guy who invented it. It's the <laughs> XYZ guy's yeah. last name method. Right. And those people are so devout and it's like, you have to do the drainage in a very, very particular way, or it's not going to work. And it's like, that is a business model, not a clinical model. Yeah. You know, fluid dynamics is fluid dynamics. And if you understand the basic anatomy and physiology of the lymphatic system, you can move mountains with very, very little effort and keeping it real simple. Very um, well, and very gentle too, right? The, yeah. the idea that your lymph needs like 40 millimeters of mercury, like the lightest light touch of pressure of either compression or decompression or better yet both. Right. It's going to be the most effective, right? So it's a really, really light amount of pressure when you're thinking about that. And then the thing that blew my mind well, after talking to Perry, it was like, I went back and I looked at where all the lymph nodes were. And I was like, well, duh, it's at every single joint space where oh, the joint yeah. has the biggest freedom of motion. So you got the biggest freedom of motion at your shoulder joint. Well, you got your axillary biggest, right. you know, at your hip. You yeah, your hips, yep. The back of your knee, right? So any joint that has the most amount of motion, it has the most density of lymph nodes. Like and exactly it just like right. clicked for me. And I was like, oh my gosh, it makes so much sense. We're meant and it also makes it a lot simpler too, because yeah. now I call them pumping stations. Oh, I think that was inspired by by Perry as well. But it's like, listen, you got you got about six or eight pumping stations in your body. Yeah. And if you understand how these work, you can still use your proximal to distal approach. And so I teach obviously traditional manual lymphatic drainage as part of the course. Like, Hey, you're a clinician. This is how you would go through a process of doing lymphatic drainage for the right leg, let's say. And then it's like, well, what if you're not a clinician? What if you're an athlete at home? And I'm like, well, how many people, how many athletes have a percussion gun now? Raise your hand. It's like nine out of 10 people raise their hands. It's yeah. like, well, guess what? Perpendicular to potent is a great way to move fluid. Yeah. So take your percussion gun, put it on setting one, barely touch yourself with it oh, yeah. and do little circles around your pumping stations in this order. All of a sudden it's like, holy crap, my range of motion improved, uh, like doubled up in, in a 20 minute session doing it to myself. Another one that I put in that category is I call it NMES pumping. So using stim devices. Now I'm not a huge fan of stim in the way it's traditionally used, which is here's an ice bag and here's some stim and Lay I'll be back in 20 minutes. Cause this is going to help you heal. It's like, you're literally just saving yourself some time. And again, I, I know people get hot under the collar when I attack the things that they do every day specifically. And it's like, well, listen, like, let's be real. It's like, can that person get better without the ice and stim that you just put on them? It's like, oh, how, they'd probably be better off not doing it at all. But let's just say we're going to use stim. And I think in acute care, acute cases, this is where I do use it, which is over the counter units to create a little fast twitch response, right? A little bit of a fast twitch muscle reaction, boom, non-fatiguing, right? Because your nervous system's not using it. And you're actually using movement and muscle activation, like you were saying in that meet, in a passive way. So it's like, I, that's the time and place for it. Yeah. These options are, are important. I, I think, you know, I think 10, even 15 years ago, I saw a lot of ultrasound going on in both the training room as well as clinical settings. And finally, the ultrasound stuff has almost died off, you know? Thank God. Because that was the most passive of passive modalities, right? 
And I think it's just going to take another 10 years for some of this other stuff like ice, like, you know, passive treatments to slowly wither away. But like one of the biggest issues is like, what other things am I throwing in there? And I love that you're bringing in the stem idea of muscle pumping, you know, light and then lymphatic mobility, right? And using your hands or a percussive tool. The other one I've seen really stand out in the last two years maybe has been red light therapy, right? And so red light's also something when we think about cellular repair and turnover of mitochondrial ATP production, there's some slowly evolving research backing some of these devices out there. Talk to us, uh, you know, maybe a minute or two about red light and how you use it in your- I mean, I I love red light and you're 100% right. Okay, so red light therapy. It's been touted as a miracle that can slow aging, reduce wrinkles, and more. But backing up, the electromagnetic spectrum is a range of frequencies from low frequency, like radio waves, to super high frequency, like gamma waves. Red light is a relatively low frequency, so think bigger, slower waves. As Mike talks about it in a minute, when directed at the body, it's thought to stimulate the mitochondria in the cells to improve ATP production and then stimulate that cell's functions. So it's able to promote regeneration. Pretty cool. Red light's tough because it's so parameter specific. You know what I mean? Like you have to have, it's not about the light specifically. It's about the dosage of energy delivered. And so you can have a a small, I think I had a conversation with you on Instagram. We were joking about like the red light inside the pneumatic. Oh yeah. The red lights on the- Right. You remember this conversation? And, And you were like, I did the math, Mike. (laughs) <laughs> it would take you like 120 minutes of that cup to deliver the same amount of energy that would be a clinical dose of a red light unit. Yep. And it's like, and like, you know, there's all sorts of gimmicky stuff yep. out there that has a little red light bulb in it and call it red light therapy. But at the end of the day, it's about the amount of energy being energy. delivered. And what you're really talking about is radiation therapy, essentially, just like you would get energy from the sun. And that's the full light spectrum. And even the non-visible light spectrum, we can just, we're just using those two specific frequency, which is red light and near infrared light. Um, again, in the right dosing categories, we're showing exactly what you're saying. And so red light and photobiomodulation is, is really the, I think what my, what I'm using. So what I use muscle pumping and red light as a stack of therapies together in an acute scenario, that's like my ice and stim. Yeah. You know, you know, if you're going to be passive, at least let's have some type of active uh, pathway and or let's try to um, augment or optimize those things as best we can. And now what we're seeing is it's funny because the company that I use, I actually got to speak to their CEO and, you know, full disclosure, I'm an affiliate platinum LED. I just like their whole story. They got really big in the cannabis industry. Oh. When the cannabis industry started becoming, you know, recreationally, you know, all these businesses started popping up. Yeah. All these infrastructure businesses started here. Who's creating the lights? Who's creating the hydroponics? Who's creating this? And so the original genesis of them using their red light business was really them just creating grow lights for the cannabis industry. And oh. then I think he said it was actually... UCLA sports medicine that reached out and said, Hey, can you create red light therapy for us? Because these are too expensive. Yeah, absolutely. We can do that. It's the same technology. It's just a different frequency. And so they have a really great warranty, really great power for the price and a really good price point. And that's why I like, that's why I recommend them. And customer service has been good. And there's a lot um, out there. There's so many out there, but again, they're more accessible. The The price is coming down. It's all about the wattage. Yeah. Get the wattage on it. Just look at the wattage and you'll know whether you're getting the right amount of energy or not. Right. And then again, if you have more Watts, you might need less time till you get to that ATP saturation point. Right. So 
you know, it's all about the what. It's- yeah. So again, options as we hit this like idea of shifting out ice, not all the time. There's a time and a place like we both have. Absolutely. Said. There's a time and a place. If I sprained my ankle in soccer today, I'm going to put some ice on it straight away just for like making it feel better because that swollen ankle is going to throb and it's going to piss me off. Now, if I want to optimize it, like Mike said, you have to take a different route where you're going to have some pain, but you have this idea of lymph mobility and you're going to try to address some of the lymph issues that you have. You're going to try to get muscle activation. You're going to do lighter exercise, right? And then you're going to do maybe some muscle pumping with some stim or maybe just some gentle active range of motion passive range yep. of motion. You have to load some things, right? You have to put some load to excite the fibroblast to get them to lay down the right orientation when we talk about parallel fiber structure orientation and, and the way that's organized. And regeneration, absolutely. Yeah. You know, I think um, one of my favorite things, just going back to the limb thing real quick, is like every injury, minor or major, has a swelling component. And sometimes we tweak stuff we don't see swelling. And that's when your body does a really good job of actually draining that edema as it occurs, right? So any instance of swelling isn't a swelling problem. It's a drainage problem. So the, so, so the, so the, the analogy I like to use is like that slow drain in your shower. Mm. You know what I mean? It's just not getting the water out as fast as it's coming in and slowly you're in ankle deep, dirty water. (laughs) Well, the solution isn't slow down the shower. Yeah. The solution to match the drain, the solution is open up the drain, right? And that I think that's where people get hung up on the whole thing. And the other fundamental question I answer is, okay, like you even said, like, let me throw a little bit of ice on it because it hurts. It's like, well, pain is a multifactorial process, multi-systems process. Therefore, it can be modulated by multiple systems. And so what are some other ways that we can reduce pain? Can we reduce pain promptly in the absence of using ice altogether, which is what I'm suggesting for the optimized path is I wouldn't even do that because if you look at the physiology of healing, we get about two to four minutes of vasoconstriction right at the onset of injury. So if you're going to use ice, it's going to be in the first five minutes. How often is that (laughs) really realistic? Right. After that, we go through a period of vasodilation. Yeah. And that's the delivery of those immune immune factors and those, you know, like we talked about the fibroblasts, the lymphocytes, the macrophages, all of it. Yeah. So we need vasodilation for that. So the 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 actual window, as far if you're really looking at the physiology of healing, is actually very, 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 very small. And in my mind, it basically doesn't exist. Now, again, there's one one very important caveat to that: vascular compromise. If you are in a high trauma vascular compromise. We were suspecting that major blood vessels were severed or, or compromised. The example I use is Alex Smith's leg break a few years back, right? Where he had the complex fracture and an arterial compromise there, right? Bury that thing in ice because at that point, the benefits outweigh the risk. So one of the saving graces to ice is that it will help cells survive a low oxygen, low nutrient environment, just like the meat in your fridge. It preserves that meat for a longer period of time so that it doesn't start to decay. And again, that's what I'm trying to do is like, let's be highly specific and talk about best practices when it comes to some of these tools. And, and, you know, and the reason I like red light is even if you underdose it, you're not setting somebody back. Yeah. Right. So when I look at treatment modalities, whatever it is, you have to consider downside. You have to consider downside with upside. And when you look at ice and you look at NSAIDs and immobilization and those three things, the downside is considerable. And we just don't talk about that because the price that you're paying, you know, you're getting the downside that you're getting is at the 
the short. Oh, you feel a little bit better in the short term. It's like, is that enough? I don't know. For me, it's not enough. Yeah. You know, let me pose this question. What do you think? I've had this theory for many years now. I think the huge upswing in tendinopathy and tendinosis aspects is because we're shutting down inflammation early with NSAIDs and ice and you're not getting the right healing factors. Those cytokines are not sending the right signals to bring in the right stuff. And that tendon doesn't remodel the right way because you never let inflammation do its job. I think that's something yeah, that I, I, see I think, it. I think that's, I got, I got a little addition to that. I think, you know, when you start talking about avascular tissues in general, right. Tendons and ligaments don't have as good a blood supply. And, and so therefore they get, I think their downside using ice gets worse. You know what I'm saying? Because now you're really taking away any ability for vascularization at any level. And that's where I really think light instrument assisted stuff, light cupping things that, strain that local tissue that can maybe pull some blood from, you know, or like get that blood extravasation that pulls into the, into the, uh, the interstitial spaces, right. Might that's even more of a a benefit to those types of things. And like, even to your school cupping, my favorite use for cupping is around thick fascial sheets and around insertional tendinopathies. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. I'm going to scroll now through our Instagram questions and I, we got a lot. There was a cool. lot of interest in Instagram uh, about asking you some questions. And there was about three people that said, tell us your opinion, Mike, on ice baths for recovery. That is the number one question I get. I'm sure it and, is. Because they're and, like, oh, wait, ice is everywhere right now. Like, right. So ice baths for recovery, not worth it. But, but are they worth it in general as a daily practice? I think so. And, and here's the reason. So when we talk about an ice bath versus an ice pack for an injury, we're talking about two completely different things. Um, if you're going to a cryo sauna or an ice bath on a, as a one-off recovery method, you're, you're wasting your time. And, and so here's what we know that cold water immersion will actually, can actually attenuate muscle growth and hypertrophy, right? So it can actually reduce your ability to get a post-training muscle growth effect, which is what most of us are trying to get when we train. Now, the benefit to ice baths is a hormetic effect. And that's really as far as the research has really confirmed at this point, which is if done consistently over time, you are basically raising the threshold point to where your nervous system spills over into fight or flight, right? So you're making your nervous system more resilient to stress. And there's lots of health benefits to that slow exposure, just like you know, so people are like, what is, well, what is hormesis? It, well, it's the same way like a vaccine works, right? Where we're exposing you to a little bit of pathogen so that your body builds up some robustness against it in the future, right? That's where ice baths come in. And, and that's the same thing for sauna, right? Yeah. So it's like, which one do you want? Eh, whichever one you prefer. I mean, there's slight subtle differences in, you know, the, the after effects. And so again, if you're going to do an ice bath as part or an ice cold shower in the morning, right. To hit that, that norepinephrine and adrenaline spike as a biohack for the morning, by all means go for it. But it's not the same thing as icing as far as a treatment is concerned. Especially for an injury. I think a lot of the ice baths and sauna is great, healthy practice and preventative medicine for healthy bodies, not for an injured body. And so people take it and run with it again. It's blanket statements, just Cold, right? Because cold is the blanket statement. It's like, well, if this is good, then this has to be good also. And it's not the same. It's again, that's where we're starting to talk about the nitty gritty of it. And I agree with you. 
Another one that was a couple different people asked the same thing is, you know, they love this idea of meat over rice, shifting out of the ice age, going to a more progressive stance. But how do you do this when come like communicating with your athletes, your coaches, your physicians, right? These heads of the teams that you have to work with, how are you able to negotiate? And what are some like, I think techniques or advice you have for the people trying to negotiate this shift of paradigm? Um, I think you, you had Joe Lavaca on recently. And I, yeah. and I think, I think when he, and he's, he's my go-to resource for things like communication. And, and that's something that I'm working on in leadership and communication, because it's not about what you say. It's about how you say it. Right. We've all heard that adage. And, and I think I also pull a lesson from 42 laws of power by Robert Greene. Number one is never outshine the master. Right. And so what, he, what it, the whole chapter is about this idea that if you're a talented young upstart and you have somebody that's above you in a hierarchical structure, right? Like somebody who's in a leadership role over you, you don't want to go biting that bear on the ass too much, right? You have to position yourself where they're the expert. And so the way that I would say is like, Hey, have you seen like, you know, I post a lot of anti-ice stuff. Let's say, have you seen this? What do you think about that? right? You, you pose that as a question to that person, that expert above you and have them tell you what you think. Well, I'm thinking about using less ice. What do you think? We're having a conversation now that's not attacking something. And, and maybe depending on the relationship, depending on the person, they're open to having that conversation about how this emerging data can shift or change how we approach these problems. If you're going to say, Hey coach, I don't want to do this with our guys anymore or girls anymore. This is what I, I'm proposing instead. And, and when I worked in my last division one school, that's exactly what I did with my baseball coaches. And they were like, this is awesome. We love it. Go do it. You know what I mean? Because I presented them an alternative that, that I was saying, this is going to lead to better outcomes off, you know, on the field. And, and that's all they care about is they want to have their athletes stay healthy. And so you have to have a well thought out plan. It's easy when your outcomes speak for themselves, 100%. when you see the person three months later, outshining this person that got ice and compression and immobilized for a long time, and they're already doing the things that they want to do quicker, I think that shines very quickly. It's like when I got to UCSF Medical School and I started bringing cups around, this is an academic university that's one of the top research hospitals in the world. And everybody shat on my idea of using cups. And I said, okay, let me show you what I can do with your ACL meniscus root repair. And give me three months and I'll show you what's going on. And I guarantee, like, this is not bullshit. Six months later, the ortho docs were coming down to get treatment from me using cups. Right. Yeah, because results speak louder so than anything, 100%. Yeah. So your outcomes really, you know, if you're consistent my, and you're good with what you're doing, I think the outcomes really shine a huge light on it all. My, my favorite thing is to send athletes back to their, surg- their surgeon two to three weeks post-op for their follow-up yeah. with full range of motion and no song. Totally. And they go, what the hell did you do? So if I can get them moving better in the shortest amount of tar- time and they have less pain as a result of it, we call that winning across the board. And who wouldn't be interested in that? The hardest part is getting people to accept something that might be contrary to what they've learned. Yeah, that's been my role at, at Cal for the last 13 years is as a PT on staff with all these amazing athletic trainers I work next to. I'm the one that gets the people that just aren't getting better. It's a little more complex. You just can't solve it. It's more time needed, right? Yeah. More time. It's great. It's a great place to live, but I think these communication things are so important and, and we can't emphasize enough the biopsychosocial aspect of this. So I love that you touch on that and let's just kind of 
finish up with the idea of what that looks like encompassing all this. When you think about biopsychosocial, what what comes to your mind? People are more than a meat suit, you know, and and we just have to remember that fact. And and like, you know, again, this is where I really dive into the pain conversation and the neuroscience of trauma in the course is like, you just, again, and and especially for athletes and, and not to say that athletes stand out amongst, you know, right. The general population, but when you take, um, uh, an athlete, think about an athlete on a team. How am I going to contribute to my team? What are my coaches going to think? What if I can't come back? Am I still going to get my scholarship? There's just so many variables and factors. And one of the studies that I reference is, um, talking about like the neuroscience of, of pain is really the neuroscience of fear and how fear, anxiety, and pain on a chronic level are virtually the same neurosignature, virtually the same thing. Like if you looked at a functional MRI, you almost couldn't tell the difference. How can you tell the difference? Context. That's how you tell the difference. And so if the whole idea is if you can create a robust plan for somebody, if you can educate somebody, if you can have them buy in, understand, okay, this is what's happening. This is how we're going to lay up your appointments. Here's what you need to do. Here's a nutrition guide. Here's a recovery guide. At least you're giving them some, you're giving them some sustainability in the fact that you're giving them back some autonomy. I think that was the perfect 360 to come back to where we started and and just you have to have options that if you take the ice away which you should most of the time you got to have something else to put in place with it and say this is going to work and create that exact type of structured plan that they can digest and feel educated with and then they're empowered love it mike sir great conversation man i think like you said the most important part is getting this out to everyone like just spread this knowledge spread this podcast to get out there to the surgeons, to the MDs, to the primary care, sports medicine practitioners. This is really important stuff. So tell us where we can find out more if people want to take the deep dive with you, Mike. Um, so there's really, there's two platforms that you can take into the Ice Age on. Uh, I have my own platform. It's powered through thinkific.com. So you can actually just search end of the Ice Age, Mike Stella, and the first link will pop up. But it's, um, you can also just go to my website, uh, mikestellamovement.com, all the links direct to the course of there. And then your Instagram has tons of great info as well. Check them out there. We'll, we'll put it all in the show notes and liners and stuff like that. So awesome. Awesome, man. Yeah, man. It was great. Yeah, man. Sounds great. Yeah. Thank you for having me on. It was a lot of fun chatting with you and chopping it up. Thanks so much, Mike. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by me, Arpita, and Krista Prado. Follow us on Instagram for updates, and please like, subscribe, and rate the podcast to keep more episodes coming. You can find Mike at MikeStellaMovement.com and on Instagram at MikeStella underscore ATC. Thank you.